I don't think AI is ever going to be sentient. I don't think that that's a that's a thing. Like we're just talking about a math. We're talking we're talking about algorithms running in the background based on patterns that they find in data. And at the end of the day, that these algorithms aren't making decisions. They don't have agency. They just blindly follow the pattern. So um, there's definitely a uh, there's an opportunity there for us to significantly automate that process so that physicians don't have to think about that stuff. They shouldn't have to think about that stuff, right? Even if you go to school to become a really good medical coder, what you're learning, what you're learning is the combination of codes that Bill wanted. Right, it's not. But you're still not a doctor. Go find the technology partner because that combination oh, of yeah. the right technology partner and the right medical partner equals AI Medica or, or the equivalent, right? Right. And, and that's where we've really found a ton of success. Welcome to Digital Health Transformers, the podcast where we explore the dynamic world of healthcare innovation, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Bryce Barger, and today we have an awe-inspiring guest at the forefront of transforming the healthcare landscape. Join us. Joining me today, guys, is Jordan Ritchie. He's the CEO of AI Medica. He is a software developer with a PhD in biomedic um, in, in, uh, informatics and data science. He's focused on optimizing electronic health records to improve patient care and decrease physician burden. AI Medica is a digital health company. They leverage the, the power of AI um, and artificial intelligence to unlock the true potential of, ER, uh, of EHR data. It automates physician workflows and deploys evidence-based risk scores to improve patient care. With a focus on improving patient outcomes, AI Medica aims to increase access and research data to patient to, to point of care. So in this episode, we'll delve deep into Jordan's journey, how AI Medica is changing the game, and the difference it's making in patient and in providers' lives. Thank you for joining us today, Jordan. How are you? Great to be here, Bryce. I'm doing really well. Thank you. So to kind of get started here, could you tell us a little bit more about your background, kind of how you decided to be um, to kind of get into the health, the health tech entrepreneur world and, and kind of what that journey looks like for you? Sure. Yeah, I originally told myself that uh, I wasn't going to do this. <laughs> um, I, I started out uh, kind of in a life science track. I really thought that I was going to become a, a researcher and um, I was in molecular biology and specifically in genetics and genomics. I was pushing pipettes in labs and doing experiments. And um, I was introduced to bioinformatics uh, briefly, and uh, I was initially fascinated by it. And I kind of kept pressing on that vein, and it grew and grew. And I eventually started working for um, a, a small startup that was doing, uh, it was a genomics startup they were looking at trying to identify rare diseases uh, using you know, broad genomic analysis they had a really cool platform um i learned i mean i was in the startup you know you wear every hat imaginable so i was learning a ton outside of the science itself as well and um unhappy ending there company went under but learned a ton and uh and and that kind of set me on this path away from sort of the research realm i, I kept going down the software development round and or, or route and 
got, I, I really wrestled with whether I wanted to really continue down that research if I wanted to go back to, you know, get an M, you know, to get an MD, become a doctor. I'd really got interested in health and, and the intersection of technology and healthcare and, and um, ultimately decided to, uh, after working as a software developer for another year or two, decided to go back and get my PhD. And so I went to South Carolina, uh, to the Medical University of South Carolina, um, and studied biomedical informatics and data science. And there I discovered electronic health record systems where there's an enormous gap, both technologically and, uh, um, and for, and in data and, and the use of data in healthcare and, just i i don't know it spoke to me it seemed like the it just seemed like my place it seemed like right. where i wanted to add value and um graduated and connected through a vc firm with my uh, business partner dr adam robison who had founded ai medica uh amazing uh he's an amazing guy he's just he's one of those guys that you know operates and uh at, at such a high level of efficiency he gets so much done and anyway he started this company but he's also you know still being a doctor and right. and he's like i need i need technology i need somebody who can come help me run this company so he's I said, well, I'll bring the technology. He said, I've got the medicine. Uh, it was a match made in heaven. We've been working together ever since. And and uh, that's that's how I got into where I am. Gotcha. So you also did some missionary work in Thailand. Is that correct? I did. Yeah, that was a what was huge that part. Like? Yeah, a huge part of... Um, huge part of my my genesis and 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 really turned me into who I am made me a much more compassionate person uh yeah. broadened my perspective helped me see the world very very differently so I'm I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and we serve missions we go you know for two years uh we put our put our paperwork in and and uh the you know church leadership makes a decision about where we'll serve for the two years and and I received a call to go to Thailand and um, I was all over Thailand I was in uh, I spent uh, almost a year in Bangkok and six months up north in Chiang Mai area. Then went out to the northeast in the Isan, and um, it was it was transformative. You know, we we learned yeah. the language. We we kind of we you know, we lived much you know, much closer to the people than you know if you go vacation type of thing. You kind of you know, live in a you, know, you know, go stay at a resort or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was we we lived in an apartment on a, in a neighborhood with a whole bunch of other type people type of thing, and you know, boots on the ground and. We got to see the world in a very different, you know, for a for a nineteen year old, you know, nineteen year old kid too is right. super eye opening. You know, to a totally different yeah. experience. I participate in lots of different things and serve in lots of different ways and really kind of get out of myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, recognize too what I have and what I've been given and blessed with and and uh, and, and have an opportunity to give something give something back. It was it was hugely transformative for me. It really really changed my approach to my career, my business and, you know, who I wanted to be and, and what kind of projects I wanted to be involved in and, and, and how I wanted to, you know, uh, lead my life. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely, I, I could only imagine how rewarding that would be to, to be able to go over and experience the different culture. And, 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 and kind of like you mentioned, when you go as, as Americans and you go over and experience kind of um, some of the, other countries you do get that resort feel but when you get to kind of dive deep into the true culture the streets and kind of um get fully immersed in their culture is, is so rewarding and, and then to be giving back in a missionary type state is is, is fantastic so uh thank you for sharing that um yeah, so yeah. To, to get back to the technology side of stuff um i know nowadays of course everybody 
is very interested in AI, artificial intelligence, AI, let's go, oh my gosh, um, and kind of the potential that it has. How do you think AI is going to kind of affect the healthcare industry in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years? Or really gonna, more than that, five to 10 years, I would say, of how I, things are going. I, I think it's going to transform it. Um, I, I think like any really exciting technology, there's, you know, there, there's um, tons of transformative potential here. And we're seeing a ton of that transformative, um, real, we're realizing that transformative potential. But I also think there's a lot of froth. I think that there's a lot of excitement that's that's misunderstood, and and that's that's also very common. You know, new technology is once once people uh, you know get their hands around a hammer, everything becomes a nail, and we do have some of that. And uh, I, so I think on on the one hand, there's some tasks and jobs that AI is very very well positioned to help automate, very very well positioned to help um, expedite and and do. There's other jobs and tasks so that people are very excited about AI doing that I don't think AI is going to be very effective and isn't going to have a lot, of, isn't going to have exactly the kind of impact that people are looking for. Um, I, I come back to this all the time. Um, AI is just, it's just math. You know, it, it does imitate what looks like intelligence uh, and, and people get really hungry. I, I, I see an article a week about AI becoming sentient. Um, and I just, yes. and, I, and I just wrote an article about this too. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for some places to get it published here. And uh, there's a look for that coming out soon somewhere, but, but I just wrote an article about this and, and it's not like, I, I'll just be bold. So I don't, I don't think AI is ever going to be sentient. I don't think that that's a, that's a thing. Like we're just talking about a math. We're talking, we're talking about algorithms running in the background based on patterns that they find in data. And at the end of the day, that these algorithms aren't making decisions. They don't have agency. They just blindly follow the pattern. They're dispassionate, right? They're going to spit back to you, whatever you give to them in the first place. And so uh, I think that in some industries where you can give really, really, really good data with solid patterns in the data, you're going to get a great application of AI. That's why AI is working so well in imaging, because when you give images to an algorithm, each image is a complete picture. It has all of its pixels, right? And, and, and it's easy to spot a picture that's missing pixels. And, and if you give an AI algorithm pictures that are missing pixels, your output's going to be missing pixels, right? Or it's going to have pixels in weird places. And so, uh, you know, places, something like images does really, really well. But when you take data that's incomplete, right? Like a patient record, for example, patient records are not complete pictures. They're missing enormous chunks, right? That are siloed away in different health systems. Even if you took all of a patient's data from every hospital or doctor's office they'd ever been to, and you managed to coalesce that all into one record, it would still not be a complete picture of the patient. And it's the idea that we're going to throw all of that incomplete data into an algorithm and then expect it to produce outputs that doesn't have holes, that doesn't have errors and make mistakes, that doesn't work that way because it can only follow the pattern, right? And so stuff like that makes me really nervous around certain applications of AI, because again, it's just hammer and nail. Everybody's swinging this AI hammer at whatever they can. And, you know, if you, if you hammer in a nail, it works really well. But if you try and hammer in a screw or a bracket or something that's not a nail, right, it doesn't work so great. And so I think there's a lot of froth. I think there's a lot of misconception about what AI is, how it actually works, how it's actually deployed, and how to control 
the types of outputs and outcomes that you get with your AI. I think there's there's a lot of growing that the general consumers of AI need to understand um, as we move forward that will help a great deal. Sure. I think I think in kind of kind of to as you said, with anything new, there's that learning curve and there's that um, general excitement where people just rush in without doing the proper, the proper, have the proper knowledge, the proper research. So I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent, Richie. I think that's, um, I, I think that's uh, fantastically well said. So why? I know, there's, there's, I, there's another side to this too, that I should probably highlight. And that is this fear yeah. that, there, and and we should just um, disabuse anybody who may still be under this impression that AI is going to somehow start replacing people. Um, mm. And 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 it's true that there are some tasks that AI is well suited to do really really well, but yeah. no it's actually a lot more it's a lot more difficult for AI to replace people than I think people think. And um, there's a there's something called the fundamental theorem of biomedical informatics. Uh, it's posited by uh, Charles Friedman that says yes. that a computer um, plus a human right, is better than a human or a computer by itself. Right. And the reality is, is that AI will always need to be paired with humans, period. Uh, recently, um, I read a quote recently from a, um, somebody at the American Medical Association. You know, he said something like, "You, know, I'm not. I'm convinced that computers will never replace doctors, but doctors who use AI will replace doctors who don't use AI." Right. The point is, is that AI is going to become a companion tool, not a replacement solution, um, and especially in medicine. And we're seeing this even with with Medica, there's like, there's, we, our aim is not to replace the doctor. Our goal is to augment the doctor, right? Is to remove right. tasks from the doctor that the doctor either doesn't have time to do, but should be doing. Um, usually tasks the doctor wants to do, but doesn't have time to be doing. Um, or to in other ways, speed and speed up and enhance doctor's ability to care uh, for patients. There's there's another um, iteration on that, that theorem of biomedical informatics uh, from Charles Friedman by um, another guy, I forgot his name, but he, they did a really interesting experiment around chess using these AI algorithms where you know, they've, they've got some AI algorithms that play chess really, really well, right? And, and they did this experiment where they said, all right, we're going to have some grandmasters operating alone. We're going to have some grandmasters with a single AI resource. We're going to have some AI resources playing by themselves, and we're going to have some other chess players playing with a bunch of AI resources, and we're going to do a tournament, right, and see who wins. Right. And uh, interestingly, the the team that won was uh, an amateur chess player who was using multiple chess algorithms um, as he was playing, and that amateur chess player with multiple AI algorithms ended up beating the grandmasters beat the grandmasters who were using a single AI resource, beat the AI resources, right? And, and so what, what we really learned there is that, a, and they, they really expound on this and they say, look, a weak human using many AI resources and a good process is better than a strong human working with a single, you know, even many AI processes and a, and a weak process, right? And so there's something to be said for the power of combining a great process with strong AI algorithms you can turn a 
a crappy doctor into an awesome doctor. Fantastic one, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But, and I but love the point what, is it, it won't replace the doctor, right? Yeah. And I was about to, I was about to really kind of I, I love what you said there, where you said, listen, AI is not meant to be a, a replacement solution. It's meant to be a tool. And I think that is um that really hits the nail on the head of what how AI should be looked at as a hey, because you're right, there's always going to be need to be those checks and balances. The AI will never know what it what it's not input, what's not input into it. Um, so I think there's always, I, I agree with that, where there, there will always need to be, um, I guess, to get the full um, scope and to get the everything out of AI, there will always need to be that human input and that human use of it to really put it to its full use. Um, so I, 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 love, I love what you said that. So I know AI Medica is um, focusing on EHRs and, and has a mm. big focus on EHRs. Why, why EHRs? Why, why did AI Medica choose? I obviously know there's a huge gap in, in the technology of EHRs. Is that the main reason or is, were there multiple reasons of why AI Medica chose to focus on EHRs? Well, AI Medica was founded by um, Dr. Mm -hmm. Adam Robison, who, uh, like just about every doctor who's, you know, ever um, interacted with an EHR, experiences significant pain in the electronic yeah. health record system. You've seen those build, you've seen those billboards that say something like, you know, I, I love back pain, said no one ever. Yeah, that's kind of how doctors, <laughs> read. it's like, I love EHR, said no doctor ever. Um, and, and that's a terrible loss. Like, EHRs were supposed to be this huge improvement on how we manage mm. our medical data and it was supposed to provide enormous benefits from a from management standpoint documentation standpoint from treatment and clinical research and all these different things the reality is that it hasn't delivered on any of those promises and it's not it's it's not a technology problem it's a it's a business political problem and 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 by saying it's not a technology problem what i mean is that as a you know we have the we we understand how the technology should work to provide those values but politically and from a business perspective the technology hasn't been implemented that way and and we're in that space the hrs are leveraging all kinds of bad practices that have been you know that that uh that aren't in use in any other industry uh, that's doing amazing things with large amounts of data. You, know, you think about what we're accomplishing with online banking and with air travel and with e-commerce yeah. and with, you know, all of these large industries that are leveraging, you know, uh, uh, big data and and access and security and all these different things that matter. We're not doing that stuff in healthcare, not not with EHRs, not the way that we should. And it's it's not because we don't know how, and it's not because we can't. It's just because those who are in power have chosen not to for, for various reasons that are unfortunately selfish and not in our general interest. Um, but there have been positive steps forward recently with legislation come out from the Office of the National Coordinator of Health Information Technology to open up EHRs and mandate uh, you know, adherence to common data standards you know, this is the substitutical medical apps and usable technologies on fast healthcare interoperability resource, also known as Smart on Fire, uh, that you know makes it easier for you know defines a common way for data to be exchanged between health systems, promote interoperability, and and start bringing start tearing down some of the barriers to entry for innovative startups and companies so that they can get in with the data and actually produce value in a technology environment that so far has arguably provided you know has arguably underachieved given its potential for sure right and i, so, I think um yeah 
I think people in the everyday in the everyday world who are not in healthcare technology, I don't think they fully understand like the benefit of having a truly effective EHR and what that can do to patient outcomes and what that can do to um, just so many things on the around the board. So I um, I guess you know. Um, no, absolutely. I totally agree. And, and, know, and part of the reason, yeah. like part of the reason that the AHR was such a focus initially was because for, for Dr. Robinson, it's his, he spent so much time. He's like, I got to make this yeah. better for myself. And so right. there, there was a very, um, you know, eat your own dog food, askness, askness, that's not very eat your own dog food vibe to how AMM yeah. became. And for me, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm not that kind of doctor, right? I'm not, I don't see patients. Uh, and so, so for me, it's like, I, I'm I'm looking at this more from I, I think that EHRs are could be the equalizing force for patients in healthcare. You know, we always talk mm -hmm. about oh, it's healthcare is about the patient. We got to engage the patient. We got to get to the patient. We got to help the patient. And for all the talk we have about the patient, there's nobody more disenfranchised in healthcare than the patient. Right. They're so removed from their healthcare, and the 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 biggest reason for that is because it's it's data. Mm -hmm. Patients are completely removed from healthcare because they don't have access to their data, at least not easy access to their data. Yeah, and you think about sure. you think about what we do with our money. You can access multiple mm -hmm. financial institutions and link them across each other super simply. Yeah. Yeah. The, because they we just the you know, finance sector has adopted application programming interfaces and they have avoided the disincentive of hoarding data because the and user, we won't tolerate that, right? We won't use their services yeah. if our money can't be shared. And so it's like, and, and and so that's why the security and the HIPAA compliance and the, or not, not the HIPAA compliance, but the, the security argument, the privacy argument that no mm -hmm. data should be shared doesn't hold water, right? Yes, I'm all about HIPAA. I'm all about privacy. I'm all about security. And we adhere to all of that. And we're very careful. We don't store any PHI. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we, we, we do everything on the up and up. Everything's above board. Uh, and we need that. That has to be. But the the argument that a lot of these EHR, big EHR players have pushed is that because of privacy and security, there can be no data access and no data sharing. That's a lie. It's just not true. Yeah. And if you dial security all the way to 100%, you don't have a product, right? If you can't yeah, access the data you at all. Make? You can't do anything, even, yeah. even from a user standpoint. And that's what we're seeing. Doctors can't really do anything with the EHR that's useful clinically. The patients mm. can't do anything with the EHR until, <laughs> I mean, until very recently and still kind of coming into being. Patients had to pay and wait for a long time to like have a PDF of their record printed out into like a bound book. Like it's yeah. crazy what we're, we're, you know, some of the practices here. So yeah, with the technology I, I, we have. It's what exactly. we do it. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a huge opportunity for the EHR. If once it's opened up and once we can really optimize it, turn it into what it should have been all along, I think there's a humongous opportunity to not only um, transform the technology in a way that significantly benefits the way doctors treat patients, but also to engage patients where healthcare happens. Dr. Robinson says this all the time. Healthcare happens in the home. You know, the, the 40 or, you know, the, so sorry, like, you know, the 20 years or 30 years that lead up to a chronic disease that's happens in the home. That doesn't happen in the mm -hmm. hospital. They just end up in the hospital as the result of those 20 or 30 years. And we're right. not reaching patients there. Right. And the way to do it's with mm -hmm. data. Yeah. 
Can you kind of elaborate more on the impact of the dynamic risk scores and kind of how those are automatically generated based on the patient's problem list with AI Medica? Yeah, sure. So we build the clinical decision support tools, one of our products that um, is aiming to simplify the workflows for physicians who are beholden to hundreds or even thousands of potential medical risk scores um, that require input from data in the EHR. And then they've got to know which scores map to which patients, and they've got to manually hunt down the data, plug it in. We're talking about lab values and vitals and yeah. medications and problems and all kinds of other things that they have to you know, go dig out of the EHR or put into these these uh, these calculators, oftentimes they're in third-party websites. Sometimes they don't. They're not on any website at all. Um, and try and get to some kind of a, uh, of outcome. You know, some. You know, what's this patient's in hospital mortality, or what's their comorbidity for stroke, or what's their you know some 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 piece of information that's going to help them treat their patient or make a decision. And um, what Adam, Dr. Robinson, realized was that this, you know, these scores living outside of the EHR was just, a, it was a time killer for his workflow. It was just sucking up all of his documentation time. And it was making it super hard for him to apply these, you know, to practice evidence-based medicine the way that he really wanted to practice it. And so he's like, well, these just need to integrate. And so he started looking at how to do that. And, um, you know, he has a knack for just figuring stuff out. And he got really far before I, you know, before he and I connected and I said, and he was doing things all the right way too. He's using all the right standards and he's integrating in all the right places. And I said, Hey, I, I can help you do this. And so we came on and we started working out together. And, and what we've done is built a tool that can look at the chart of the patient, you know, they look at the patient's chart and make some initial guesses, some good mm -hmm. educated guesses about, Hey, you know, based on this patient's problems and their vitals and their current situation, here's a set of risk scores that look highly applicable, right? Right. And once we've identified those calculators that are, look highly applicable to the patient, we can also go look into the EHR and say, hey, by the way, we can also say, here's the data elements that match with the inputs that. to these calculators. We'll just pull it over for you automatically, right? right. And it's beautiful because then the physicians who, you know, they get a, a small, focused, curated list of calculators that apply to this patient, that then they can say, all right, you know, rather than considering 700 calculators, they can consider five, you know, or three. And, and they might only need one or two, right? And that's great. That's totally fine. It's all in there. They can go look at the one they want to look at. And, you know, some of those, we might not be able to pull all the values over, but they might open it up and it says, you know, clinical assessment required. They pull it open and um, maybe, you know, we've been able to pull over two thirds of them. The things that aren't in the EHR that we can't pull over are things that the, only the doctor would know anyway. Right? right. And so then it's just a couple of quick answers that they know right off the top of their head and boom, they have their assessment and then they're able to go treat their patient. And many of these are super valuable, not just to the doctor and to the way they treat the patient, but also to hospitals, right? Because these things are around, you know, should this patient be hospitalized or can this patient be treated without patient care? What's their risk? Of a, of a major bleed or a or a, a, a in hospital mortality or something like that right you know and, and that that has those things have major implications for yeah. um, how hospitals are get charged oh, yeah. i know re i know re-emission rates are, are so huge um yeah. coming totally. coming from the hospital side so being able to for the doc to the, the hospitals to be able to kind of um look at those those dynamic risk scores and that that, that that's massive um, I know he, you, you briefly spoke on it when we were, when we were um, answering earlier recently, I know we've seen, 
um, a real exponential increase on cyber attacks, uh, especially in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. How does AI Medica kind of ensure that all the data that it that it compiles and that it can help transfer? How is how is that safe? How is that secure? No, it's a good question. I, I really should have my should have my chief technology officer on here to tell you all about that. Um, but I can tell you from a high level without getting really deep into the weeds yeah, here definitely. that um, we. So there's a there's there's a piece of reading here that I wish every everybody in health technology would read, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's not really a it's not like a it's not a book or an article. It's actually kind of a it's a it's a it's a funny um, piece of material because it was written by a guy who worked at Amazon and he worked at Google uh, five years of both places, and he wrote an internal memo while he was at Google detailing the things that big data was doing well at Amazon. And that Google wasn't doing very well at the time he was there. And then he posted it on the Google Circles platform, which mm-hmm. was kind of part of his point was to say that this platform isn't working very well. And he thought it was going to be a private communication to his to, to Google. And it actually posted publicly and went viral. Right. Oh, so man. he thought for sure he was going to be fired. Um, it, I think in a lot of ways, it actually kind of like elevated his career in a bit, in an interesting way. But um, and he wasn't fired and he was exactly right. And his point probably, uh, his name is Steve Yeager. And um, if you just Google Steve Yeager's rant, you'll probably find it. It's posted on GitHub somewhere. It's kind of this like revered document in the developer community. It's sort of funny. So, but he, um, among many things he said that were brilliant, one of the things he said that I've I've held on to and has really changed the way that I think about security is he he describes the tension that exists between security and access, and um, these things are always in always in contention with each other, right? And that makes sense. Like you're trying to you're trying to find a safe way for people to access data, but keep it secure. Make sure only the right people access it, right? And anytime you open up a door. You know, to data, there's the potential for it to get hacked or misused, and so I, the the result is um, a lot of these healthcare companies who who rightfully are terrified of conf- of consequences of having data breaches, right? They slam that door, right? Yeah, Nobody can access, or, or a very <laughs> very very restricted second access. And what's really interesting about that, and, and he makes this argument is like, look, it's possible to have now. This isn't the way that healthcare should do it, but he says it's possible to have a low security, high access um, s- technology and still have a product. And he names Sony PlayStation Network as a reasonable example. And it's true. You, you get on the Sony PlayStation Network for five minutes and you you, you, know, you run the risk of downloading a virus. Or but but yeah. it's still a network and tons of people still play and you've got a product there. That's not a model for healthcare. Don't, don't anybody take my words here and twist them the wrong way. I'm not advocating for that. But his point <laughs> is that you can have low security and a product. But if you yeah. dial security to 100%, you have no product. There is no successful anything out there that's ratcheted security all the way to the top. And because that, ne- na- that necessarily dials access all the way to zero, right? And so mm. the point that he makes is that what we really need to do is we need to adopt best practices of technology around security and access so that A, we can have a product, but B, so we can have good security. And his real argument that's brilliant is that if you provide good access, right? If, if you're really thinking about access and doing, doing best practices around how you provide access to your data, 
you'll actually have better security than if you yep. don't. And that's what we see in healthcare. Right now, access is dialed close to zero. Security is dialed all the way to the top. And we have more breaches a year, every year over a year than than ever. If you, and, and there's several research articles that you could, I mean, you don't have to look very far to find it. Those graphs are exponential. They look like this. The last time I checked, it was, I think it was, you know, they had data up through like 21 or something or through 22. I'm sure it's more now, but, but they had, um, the year that I checked there, which was like 2021 or 2022, uh, the number of breaches of 500 or more records per year was like twice a day, yeah. which is insane to think about, it's right? Really I mean, you can imagine the financial sector, if you had that many breaches uh, every year of, you know, like if, if your bank was like, yeah, you know, we have 500 or more clients have their bank accounts compromised. <laughs> twice a day every day of the year you'd be like i'd like to make you'd it have no customers draw. yeah <laughs> and so you know this idea that that we can't have access to healthcare data is 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 totally a lie and it's completely uh it's clearly fomented by people who benefit from from holding the data really close right? yeah definitely. Um, so at medica we're all about adopting those high those, those highly accepted and highly effective mechanisms of data access that provide the security that ultimately healthcare really needs. And um, we can, you know, we, we have to go through significant, you know, very um, stringent uh, uh, mm -hmm. reviews and audits from a security standpoint before we install into a hospital system. And, um, you know, we've, we've installed with some pretty security conscious groups. We're, 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 uh, we're very, um, very careful about yeah. how we there's, handle our data. Yeah. There's definitely that fine, always that fine line of, 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 just what you spoke to of being able to keep the um, the access to be able to um, be innovative and to be able to share and to be able to grow, but then also keep yourself keep yourself safe. Um, so I, I love that that's a focus of AI Medica as well. So kind of jumping back to um, patients and providers and kind of um, what AI Medica looks like um, to the patients and the providers. Um, I know in your work, the emphasis um, for you guys is definitely on actionable results and improving patient outcomes. So how do these evidence-based results kind of improve the quality compliance and enhance physician workflow efficiency? What are some of the, the high-level points that help the efficiency and patient outcomes? Well, one, you know, an immediate reality is that doctors are spending 50% of their time in the EHR strictly documenting and, uh, you know, when you're trying to do, you know, when you're holding a portion of the day, yeah, it's an enormous amount of time that there's, and mostly on tasks that can be automated that they shouldn't be spending their time on anyway. But, you know, you think about, think about how much time they have to spend doing some of these things that really are not, it's nothing they go to school for, you know, they don't go to school, to learn how to document a patient mm -hmm. chart to optimize it for, for an insurance uh, you know, uh, reimbursement uh, or anything like that. I mean, there's whole teams and departments of hospitals are sort of dedicated to that, but they still expect doctors to do way more in that department than they ever signed up for or ever should right. be expected to do. It's not their, that's just not their, their role. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so a huge part of this is, you know, they're so tied up with that stuff that then you throw, Oh, hey, by the way, we have this exploding body of evidence that suggests you should be treating your patients in all these different ways. You know, you know, you're talking about thousands of 
thousands of resources across thousands of patients across a doctor, you know, mm. for a week or a month or whatever the time. I mean, it's in, and then you think about all the data that goes into those calculators and it's exponential, right? You know, if you yeah. 700 calculators and then the data that it depends on is many, many more data inputs, right? And, and doctors are responsible for every single one of those inputs. And so, uh, the reality is, is that doctors don't have, they don't, they don't do some of this stuff, you know, these evidence-based medicine, uh, evidence-based calculators, risk scores, and, and, and things like that. They, they don't have the time and, or they only go out when it's really severe, right. And, and put like the pain has to be really high before they'll be, you know, be really pushed to go do that. And now we're, we make it auto, you know, we automate it and we make it almost pleasurable for the physician, that's the other thing. We don't spam doctors either. It's not the you know like uh, uh, Doctor Robinson had, you know tells me all the time. It's like I have there's software that's integrated with my EHR that's been programmed to just turn on and flash in my face every single time I open a a patient chart. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and it's not even it's not useful every time, and it drives me nuts. He's like, it's just it's like it's like going to a website and having a bunch of pop ups jump up at you right. trying to read an article, and you're like, I was. I was in the middle of something. Get out of my way. You know, I'm trying to do something right now. That's not what we want either, right? We the last thing that our doctors need is more noise. And so we've we're creating tools that the doctors actually like want to go click the button because they want to see the results of what we're running and what we're doing for them by because we're supporting them and we're helping them be more efficient. We're helping them. So we've seen a huge, we've seen just organic adoption from our doctors because they love. They love having access to this stuff. They this is what they wanted EHRs to be in the first place, which translates to more consistent application of EHR data to treating patients, which which is exactly what EHRs were supposed to deliver in the first place, right? Is that the data would flow through algorithms and risk scores that have been validated, which all of the risk scores we implement are from literature or um, are are from um, studies and, and efforts that have been done by hospitals and doctors and researchers and and um, you know, they want to see that data flow through those algorithms and produce mortality risks and morbidity risks and treatment risks and outcomes and all this stuff so they can make decisions that benefit their patients. Yeah, definitely. Kind of, kind of bouncing off that point, could you tell us a little bit more about the the learning kind of health system and and kind of how that will transform healthcare delivery. Yeah, the pie in the sky, the, the dream, <laughs> the end all dreams. And you know, the learning health system is just this idea that we could get to a point where the data was of, of such high and sufficient quality, yeah. and the algorithms were able to integrate with such ease and you know the and high security that you would be able to feed the outcomes of. Uh, the hospital's usage of tools and 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 algorithms back into the algorithms, and you get this virtuous loop, right, where you'd be able to be continuously producing new understanding and new linking and new uh, knowledge, and new insights into how to do patient care. You'd almost really merge. You'd merge um, treatment and research in a way, right? It's this idea that you'd uh, that you would be able to have technology supplement or support or help the physician uh, and be so effective that the physician is freed up to be able to um, treat the patient and observe while they're treating the patient and that we'd be able to collect the uh, the outcomes of those decisions that the physicians make and then apply um, 
additional research and algorithms on those outcomes and those inputs to produce additional insights, right? That result in, right. you know, it's, it's this ever incrementally improving care or, or a, a delivery of care based on the delivery of care, right? Which yeah. right now it all happens isolated in a vacuum, you know, in a box uh, type of thing. And, and they're not very well coalesced together and the data is incomplete and there's lots of holes, you know, lots of missing and distorted pixels, right? And if we, if we tried to do something like that now and put that data through an algorithm, the algorithm is dutifully going to tell us something. We right. just won't be able to trust it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. So, uh, Jordan, I, I really appreciate you kind of sharing that insight with us in the audience today. Kind of wrapping up, um, are there any upcoming projects or developments that AI Medica are currently working on that you're allowed or that you could share with the audience to kind of give us a maybe a, a, a brief kind of sneak peek into the background of AI Medica and what you guys are working on? Yeah, for sure. We're um, so this this initial project uh, or initial product um, that we've built this these clinical decision support mechanism, delivery mechanism, and automation for physicians. We realized that um, you know a lot of people say, "Oh, AI Medica, oh, so you're you're a calculator company." Um, and and it's true, we do have a use case around calculators. We're we're we've realized we're not really a calculator company. We're a patient chart review company, um, and. And what that really means is we can take that, you know, that's where doctors spend a, an enormous amount of their time or struggle to spend a lot of their time is reviewing patient charts, yeah. is being able to see, uh, you know, um, catch all those esoteric data points if you're responsible for those and understand also the context of those um, data elements and what they mean in, in how they treat their patient. And so realize we have this, this power to review the patient chart really effectively and efficiently. And uh, now we're trying to apply it to something that physicians are also expected to do, but hate doing even yeah. more than documentation in the HR. And that is, um, they right. really hate getting these emails on a regular basis from coding departments saying, hey, you documented that the, uh, you know, this patient had this disease. Did you mean this disease? And they're like, it's the same disease. Yeah, but the code's different and that impacts how the hospital gets paid, right? And the doctor's like, I don't care, man. I treated this patient several weeks ago or months ago. And I barely remember that day, you know, it was a night shift and I was going on 40 hours with no sleep and, you know, like, give me a break, right? <laughs> and so um, there's definitely a, uh, there's an opportunity there for us to significantly automate that process so that Physicians don't have to think about that stuff. They shouldn't have to think about that stuff, right? And then we can significantly decrease a, a, a huge channel of noise that vies for physicians' cognitive space, frees them up then to go do what they want to do, is treat patients, take care of them, right? That's another thing where, um, which is, it's so, it's, it, it's so almost weird in the healthcare world where they expect doctors, but their expertise is not coding. Some of the, those coders, those certified coders, they go to school for that. They just like the doctor does for cardiology, for diabetes, for endocrinology, right? And it's just like, but there's, it's but there's so still... weird to me that they, and, and, and that's such a big part of the healthcare system. If it is. It is. And it, it's such yeah. a big impact on the patient that you would think that there would be better checks and balances already in place. So I, I but there's know an obvious that mismatch. That is, yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's such an there's such an obvious mismatch there too, because even if you go to school to become a really good medical coder, what you're learning, what you're learning is the combination of codes that Bill wants. Codes, right? It's not. But you're still not a doctor, and so no, you still can't right. take a patient's you still can't take a patient's data and say definitively, yeah, this patient has this, this disease. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's like, it's, it's almost there, but it's not right. It, it, it's, it's a system that's designed to keep the physicians burned. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. there's an easy solution to it. And, and that's what we're trying to do. So. so with AI Medica and your expertise, Jordan, in the field, what are some advice or maybe some suggestions that kind of in closing um, that would kind of, that, that you would give to innovators in the healthcare um, in the healthcare space and the informatics space, what are some, maybe some advice or suggestions you would, you would like to give out? We need more innovation. We need more people yeah. willing to, willing to take that chance. There's a really interesting movement, right? Okay. So I, I, we're, we're at the beginning of an S curve here. Uh, data in EHR is only going to become more accessible, not less. The government has passed legislation and I think we'll continue to pass legislation that will move towards that end because it's, it's, you know, access to data is going to drive huge financial outcomes for the government and for everybody else abroad. So I think we can continue to expect to see that. Um, the so so as data opens up and becomes more accessible, um, I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for us to optimize HRs to be what they ultimately should have been all along. Um, yeah, I think also that there's a tremendous so so tremendous opportunity there. Uh, so I would say we need we need more innovators, we need more people willing to take that plunge. In the past, it's been hard to because um, the risk has been perceived to be so high. I th I think that there is a lot of fear around innovation yeah. in healthcare Definitely. that that I that rightfully exists. It's been a a lot of people have been significantly burned, and some very high profile. Right? They've, I don't think that a top down approach is going to is going to solve the issue. That's where a lot of people get really interested. They get really interested in the Amazon and the and the JP Morgan collaborations, and they get really interested in a Google and the, you know, these large initiatives that get a lot of press and a lot of attention, but so far have not you know have either publicly failed or or have quietly not delivered anything of mm -hmm. of major wow that was that's transformative. I think that this is going to be very much an innovator's dilemma ground up impact on the industry. I think we're going to see. Um, I think we're going to see innovation that, that starts to be able to thrive in this space that's going to start to redefine what our health technology landscape really looks like. I think that that opportunity is on the horizon um, and we need to keep pressing forward on that. I would also say too that if we're getting into, there, there's a tremendous amount of interest. There's a huge movement right now from physicians towards technology and innovation. Yeah. There are a lot of physicians who are and, and and it's a good thing and a bad thing, right? On one side, it's like, I'm getting really nervous because a lot of our physicians are so fed up with healthcare. Like, I don't want to be a doctor anymore, yeah. right? Which is a bad deal. Look, if the physicians all leave the hospitals, you, you, you're you going to, you know, it, it doesn't, it's no longer a hospital, it's a morgue, right? And so it's like, we've got to have physicians in the hospitals um, and the- To use these tools. Because even and, if we don't have the doctors in the in the hospital, all these all this data and these tools that we're compiling that we're innovating on, what who who's going to use them? Who's going to really oh, truly but, put but, them but, to but, use? But, but Bryce, it's worse than that. If we don't have doctors in the hospitals, then the, 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 the hospitals just become a place where you store dead bodies. <laughs> like we're not. It's true. That's a bad deal, point. right? Yeah. And so I think that you know the real point that I'm making there is that on the one hand we've got physicians who are really disenchanted with this conglomerized version of healthcare mm -hmm. and are really struggling. We've got to support them. We've got to give them technology that incentivizes yes. them to stay and helps them treat their patients better. 
And 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 so there's that's the you know the con right now is that physicians are trying to leave healthcare. The 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 pro is that most of them are trying to get into some version of technology. They're trying to solve the problem. Yeah. They're like, look, if no, if you guys are trying to solve, we'll come solve it. And it's like, okay, that's good and bad. There's there's obviously pros and cons here. And and obviously AI Medica wouldn't exist if Dr. Robinson hadn't said, all right, I'm going to do something about this, right? Yeah. Um, and that's fantastic. But my advice there, because I know I get I get contacted by physicians all the time who are saying, hey, I'm trying to make the jump into technology. Like, how do I do this? Um, you know, how do I think about this? What what do I need to go get additional education? Like, how do I? And yeah. And so so some 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 advice there I would say is like, look, be be Dr. Robinson. You're the medical. Go find the technology partner because that combination oh, of yeah. the right technology partner and the right medical partner equals AI Medica or, or the equivalent, right? right. And, and that's where we've really found a ton of success is that Adam and or Dr. Robson and I have um, that combination that's enabling us to take what Adam knows as a doctor, his medical acumen, ability, knowledge, um, and understanding and translate it into user experience that physicians really want and need. And, and the electronic health record system is becoming the vehicle to deploy those changes into healthcare to ultimately create an environment that physicians don't want to leave. Right. Right. And so to the extent that those physicians who are trying to get out of, you know, are are, are like, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. Find the right technology partner and figure out what the right problem is to solve and go solve it. Right. And, and, and and there's never been a better time to integrate into the HR and, uh, and push that innovation and create a better world. Uh, That's why, you know, my, my goal in all of this is to create a healthcare uh, system and environment that um, will look better for my children and grandchildren than the one that I'm receiving, right? And 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 I, and, and the reality is, we're all going to be patients one day. Yeah. And the state of yeah. our healthcare, right? And right. And, te- and especially from a technology standpoint, uh, we're all going to end up being cared for and treated by these systems. So let's go make them the very best that we can. Agree with that. Well, Jordan, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insight on the healthcare you know, technology and 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 also AI Medica's mission to kind of simplify healthcare. It's 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 so f- fantastic and refreshing to hear that about that. Um, I wish you continued success, of course, um, in driving positive change, uh, patient outcomes, and 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 definitely healthcare efficiency. Um, we I, I I can't wait to see what AI Medica does next. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Okay, so now that okay, was so, recording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, um, that was great. Thank you so much for that, Jordan. I think that was fantastic. I, um, yeah, I, I hope that hope that felt I hope that felt good for you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Very passionate about well, this um, stuff. I love talking about it. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, no problem at all. We'll um, um, Ankar will be in touch, or I'll be in touch, and we'll send over a recording and um, let you kind of review it, make sure everything's go, uh, copacetic on your side, and then we'll get it posted and, and see what happens. But but uh, but thank you so much. You're obviously my first guest too, so thank you for kind of breaking, yeah. helping me break through that barrier. We're excited. Hey man, somebody's got to be the first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hope you have a hope you have a wonderful holidays, and I'll I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bryce. You too. See you. Thank you too. Bye.